Now, I've been a firm believer in suffering all my life. High Tide Apocalypse, a Downtown Nightmare, and a Blowwave Messiah. All on this 38th Midnight Video with your hosts, me, Jim Hall. And me, Phil Walsh. Tonight, the world ends with rubbish dumps, transvestism, and a lack of dentists. In Russian dystopia, a visitor to a museum. Griffin Dunn's plans for a hot date take him to the wrong side of the tracks in Escorsese listeners' choice winner, After Hours. And if you were never too keen on Virginia Madison's narration in the original, Wait till you see the Alan Smithy cut of Dune. Since we last recorded... We've both independently been off to the cinema to see um, Top Cat 3D. <laughs> I thought right. you were going to say something else, yeah. What? <laughs> oh, that little uh, sci-fi film. Yes, uh, Prometheus. Well, I was coerced into it by you, really. Really? Oh, well. Well, you, you were kind of forcing <laughs> I've not twisted your arm into watching. You wanted to see it anyway. I did, I did. Uh, no, we've not. We've, despite meeting up just before we've recorded, uh, we've not mentioned it at all. So I've no idea what you think, other than you had a debate with one of your friends on Facebook, I think. Yeah, briefly. But you didn't afternoon. tell me anything about that. So, Phil Walsh, <laughs> what did you make of it? What did you make of Prometheus? Oh, I really didn't like it. I thought it was ponderously dull. Um, I thought the characters were appalling. The writing left a lot to be desired. Um, I did like some things about it. Well, the main thing I liked about it was seeing the, almost seeing the Geiger design for the Harkonnen Palace, uh, for the Hodorowsky's Dune, uh, used. That was probably the best thing. Was the huge about face? It. Uh, no, the huge structure that they're inside, mm. um, with you know the sort of rotund yeah. shape, yeah. with the ship around it. Um, but other than that, I just I was so bored. I was really, really bored by it. I went to see it at the Hackney Picture House, which I haven't been to before, and it was really full. I was surprised it was a quarter to twelve um, screening on. I can't remember which day I went. It's been out a few weeks now. Yeah, but it was last week, and it was quite full. And I was just squirming like a child being made to watch something that they don't really want to watch gosh so a big thumbs down from you yeah I was really disappointed I mean I'm not going to go into no. every little detail that no, we've annoyed got, we've, me by it we've got old films to review <laughs> exactly yeah um, no I mean I've, I feel bad if I've coerced you into doing it no, I mean no, I just no. thought it'd be nice to say <laughs> a few words about it um, having said that um, when I went to see it I'm now wondering whether to bother reviewing it now at all or saying anything because pretty much I think my opinion sort of is in line with most of the reviews I've read or come across which is um you know, it it's disappointing. It's got too many links directly to Alien, and I think it could have done with none at all. I'd have loved it if it had been completely tangential, which is what I was kind of hoping for. In fact, when it first came out and people were comparing it unf uh, unfavorably to Alien, saying Alien's claustrophobic and dark, this is too light and it's ponderous, and you know, I'm thinking, good, it's a different film altogether. But yeah, I mean, without spoiling anything, if people haven't seen it, and obviously you'll 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 be rushing out to see it now that both of us have um, 
been a bit dismissive of it. Um, yeah, there, there are several sequences which are direct links to Alien, and I think it could have done without that. Um, I didn't mind the fact that it was ponderous, but I think they could have done that a lot better. Uh, I've said to a few other people, the, the kind of religious and philosophical chunks in it really were done better in even Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think. Mm. It raises these questions and answers them immediately. Um, I mean, it's Ridley Scott going back to... I mean, his whole thing was, like, uh, what was it, unearthing the space jockey, which mm-hmm. which just never needed to be done. Um, yeah, and again, a lot of other people have said it's better to leave it as a mystery, and I think, you know, I've, I've mentioned many, many times I'm a Doctor Who fan. That falls into that trap a lot of raising questions. This is recently on the, on the show as it is now. Raising questions and then waiting a few years to answer them, and it's always going to be a disappointment. It's not just Doctor Who. It's a lot of TV shows now, you know, things... I've never seen Lost, so it's unfair of me to say that, but or Life on Mars, these things which seem to be not about taking characters and doing good, th- interesting, dramatic things with them, but just raising questions and what will the answer be? And it's like, oh, you know, nothing can really live up to that amount of expectation. And unsurprisingly, it was co-written by the, a co-writer and creator of Lost, which yeah. was a series that left a lot of bitter taste in people's <laughs> mouths because it ended with horrendous ambiguities. You know, after five five seasons, you know, you want some answers... And yeah, I mean that's that's something that's comparable with uh, Prometheus. The last thing I'll say is I think when I did see it, I quite enjoyed it, and it's one of those things that's been le- after the fact when I've read more and more reviews and heard things from people, I've been less kind of when you're arguing with people or telling people what you thought of it, you're I'm less and less convinced of my original opinion on mm, it. Yeah. I think it was more that it wasn't as terrible as I was fearing. A, fr- a friend was going on about it, and he was very enthused about it, but. Um, yeah, was it? The more enthusiastic he was, the more I found myself trying to counter him. <laughs> so that that can't be too good. You can't help but do that. Anyway, that's the hot sci-fi ticket of uh, summer 2012. The hot Russian sci-fi ticket of 1989. Let's check it out. When a protégé of Tarkovsky makes a post-apocalyptic drama, nobody's expecting Mad Max. In 1989's Posetti Tel Musea, or A Visitor to a Museum, director Konstantin Liposhansky chronicles an age when the environment's gone to hell and seems populated by mutated degenerates and enthusiastic atheists. But can our nameless hero survive his bleak stint in a futuristic bed and breakfast while waiting for the tides to recede so he can visit the titular subterranean museum? And what will he find there? As we come towards the end of this hopefully first volume of Midnight Video Podcasts, I look back over the films we've reviewed, and we do seem to have um, quite a disproportionate amount of science, uh, Soviet science fiction films. <laughs> do we? I reckon we've done about half a dozen or something, haven't we, over time? My God, I wouldn't have thought that. Let's not list them all, but certainly <laughs> things like On the Silver Globe, um, the Sex Mission, mm. the uh, Baron Munchausen. Oh yeah, you no, know, fair enough. It keeps fair going enough. on. Unsurprisingly, yeah. um, this was a choice of yours. <laughs> it's it's just a genre that draws me into it. <laughs> it's, it's got a lot going on. Um, where did you come across this? Um, when I was doing the film seventy seventy challenge, which I first mentioned in the very first episode of uh, Midnight Video, um, a good friend who writes to us quite often, Michael Little. 
was also doing it I didn't know him then but I was reading his reviews of certain films and he mentioned Konstantin Lubyshansky but I think it might have been for another of his films and I've <laughs> the name's gone right out of my head it's the one he made before this his debut I think it was but by the by anyway his his reviews of them were like quite fascinating they, they were um, they just had a similar theme of post-apocalyptic um, settings and a lot of grim goings on which appealed to me massively <laughs> yes um yeah, so that's how I found out about it. And this one, I don't know, it just appealed to me more than the others, even though it's not meant to be his uh, his best one, which is his debut, which I can't remember the Good, name the, of. The Old Man. Uh, some, it's got Old Man in the title. The it might boy. come back to me. Um, you watched this a few weeks back, and I'm just picking up, because we generally don't talk to each other about the films before we review them. Uh, I'm... I'm gathering from the way you were talking about it that you found it something of a trial. A trial and error. No, wow. no, 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 no. Um, I found it pretty hard going. Um, even as for someone with the kind of stamina that I have for uh, long, brooding, languorous films, I thought this was quite challenging. In retrospect, I did flick through it again uh, today before we came to watch it without any sound or subtitles and I had the same, similar kind of feelings but I was still quite blown well I did have sound actually it was just no subtitles so I didn't know it was being spoken which you For kind of don't need worth. to yeah yes. <laughs> but it is quite visually arresting there's some remarkable imagery in there uh, but the overriding feeling I got was it's very on the silver globe I'd, it has that kind of madness bubbling underneath it um, I'm very keen to hear what you're thinking. <laughs> uh, I sat down to watch it um, a couple of days ago, and um, I'm glad you were sitting down, <laughs> lying down actually. Um, yeah, it's very striking visuals to begin with. Like you say, um, it's kind of, and I I scrubbed through it again uh, this morning uh, before coming to do this. There's, there are some really great images in it. Uh, it seems to be bathed in red light for a lot of the time. The odd thing is. That only struck me when I was scrubbing through it, when you get to see the whole thing condensed. The experience of actually watching the whole thing in real time, because it's not actually that long, it's two hours mm. and a bit, is it? Two hours, ten minutes, I think. It had a look of a lot of um, Soviet films, which is that kind of washed out yellow, which is just a colour that can't help but make your eyes a little bit heavy. And you can kind of smell urine as well whenever you're looking <laughs> at it. Is it synesthesia when you get your yes, senses yes. a bit uh, muddled around? So yeah, I was watching this. Um, th the setup of it, the from what I'd read, you know, a, a kind of post-apocalyptic uh, society is going off to visit a museum. Sounded really interesting. Um, I had, I had some high hopes for this, but yeah, struggling through that first hour or so when as I sort of a bit glib in the introduction he's in a futuristic bed and breakfast it's not like Art Deco is it it's just set in the future it's far from it um, as we also said even without even with the subtitles it's a bit hard to really make any sense of what's being spoken I think you get the gist of the storyline such as it is but the characters are talking in quite sort of arch fashion to each other, aren't they? Making strange little proclamations. Yeah, I think there's even a part where the owner of the bed and breakfast turns around to our nameless uh, hero, the protagonist. If you, <laughs> I don't know what is a hero of, 
but um, and he says, "Oh, if you want to speak in metaphors." <laughs> At that point, I was like, oh, "Oh God, please no!" That was one of the options on <laughs> the disc, was it? <laughs> Press the red button. No. Yes, for, for metaphors. <laughs> um, yeah, I was struggling through this um, and finding it really ab- obscure in a bad way. Like it was deliberately being arch, and it did. I it think was I may oblique. Have, <laughs> oblique. Uh, I was. I think I've said this about films in the past on the show, but. Um, it almost seemed like a spoof of what you expected <laughs> Russian science fiction to be. It was so, did you well, expect, expect like Mel Smith to pop up as a Mel Smith? Is it Mel Smith? Smith and Jones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, I can imagine them ta- yeah taking the piss out of this <laughs> kind of thing. He'd be like, Possibly. he'd be disguised as uh, one of the. Uh, what do they call them? The degenerates. The degenerates. <laughs> yeah, we'll come it, on. It we'll, we'll, need to we'll, be we'll come on to those. Um, yeah, because a lot of this is just and something else. I seem to say a bit too much. It's a bit like a Samuel Beckett play. It's a lot of people sitting around being miserable, talking in incomprehensible kind of um, dialogue to each other. Um, you're not even sure quite what's going on. You, you, I think even if you're paying attention, it takes a while to really get the setup of this with the rubbish train that goes through. Again, it's it's kind of an old idea that um, actually a thing I did like about this was it wasn't like there'd been a nuclear apocalypse, was it? A it whoops an, apocalypse. A whoops apocalypse. <laughs> there'd been an environmental breakdown. Um, so even though it's an old image, the idea of people careering around on rubbish dumps carrying suitcases and there's this thing, the rubbish train that goes through, which people seem to pick up goods from, um, did actually look pretty good. I did really like that train sequence. I mean, that really reminded me of uh, Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker, which is when Lupashansky actually worked on Stalker with him. So you, there, some imagery is shared, or certainly some uh, tone or feelings are quite similar. But yeah, there's there's a there's a small section of the film where he the protagonist gets on the train. And there's a tracking shot of these old tank tracks that are laced over each other, like, and you know the metal. But the the way that the they're just left, not rotting, they're just corroding. There's something mm. like really striking about that image, and I, <laughs> I was like really looking into that as a visual metaphor for something. But pretty much like the whole film, I couldn't really relate any of these visual aspects to something a bit. Higher. Right. There's a sort of there's a lack of meta, I think, in some ways. Even though it's probably <laughs> it's full. full of it. Yeah. It's full of it. <laughs> um I've, I've been a bit cruel to hold back on this till now, but like I say, having been somewhat cruel about it for that first hour, maybe hour and a half, um, I think the last quarter of this really won me over. I mm. really loved it once he actually arrives at the museum. Yeah. Like I said, you can't help but watch that first part and think this is just going to be going around in a circle we're never actually going to get anywhere or see anything when we actually do get him going off to the museum or the mound I think isn't it called throughout the... Is that is that the museum though? Um, well the destination where he's trying to get to Because yeah maybe we're going to have to discuss that okay. because I don't think he ever gets the... Right there's a point when the thing turns around though, mm. um, and I'm sure you have this written down as well. It reminded me so much of Jodorowsky, uh, the final quarter of it. Um, It goes from being this quite dreary, obstinate, oblique film, or whatever you want to call it, to something which actually finally gets off the ground and seems... Yeah, those are the parts which seem like on the Silver Globe, which we reviewed many months ago now. Um, And again, using a lot of the same kind of ideas. Um, There's a religious allegory going on through it. 
Um, but I really got quite caught up in the atmosphere of that. And yeah, you're not entirely sure what it was attempting to say. I've got a pretty good idea, I think. Well, I certainly don't know what I think it meant, but uh, always trying to say. But yeah, I got really swept up in that. And right. it was something that if we hadn't been reviewing it, I would have certainly turned off in the first <laughs> half an hour. But I'm glad I stuck with it. That, that the, the, the final section of the film really won me over. I, th I think the last 10 minutes are quite fascinating. In a while, we're going to re review Dune, but you could draw some parallel to that, Definitely, like you yeah. say, with the religious allegory and like the chosen one and what comes out of that. Even though that it does kind of become interesting, I was still so very confused as to how this had these events had um how it culminated really i was i gave up on that narrative part <laughs> of it, as you may have guessed from the fact we're disagreeing on whether he, I'm, I'm saying the the museum because i thought that was but i think it's ambiguous yeah. anyway isn't it but on purpose um but i did want to mention actually the the soundtrack as well i i mean that's one of the overriding positives for me mm. um i really loved the way it it reminded me of some of um uh, have you seen? No, you haven't seen it. Uh, the Devil, the Zelovsky's no. The Devil. No. It shares some similarities, well, or even with um, the Artemiev stuff. Who did stuff for? Um, who did work for Tarkovsky? Who did his soundtracks? This sort of weird hodgepodge of uh, sort of electroacoustic stuff, and it was odd. It was very befitting that sort mm. of and the whole industrial soundscapes early on, where you've got these wind going through and then you're not sure if it's like machinery or yeah i mean again scrubbing through it to get uh scrubbing through it today you were aware of how much of this was occupied by the sea and the tides yeah and the sound of that which was great you know um i'm gonna say i didn't notice the music particularly mm. um we should probably talk about what we think this is actually driving at it's i don't suppose you can really look at soviet movies you know Made made at this time in the Soviet the Soviet era, without thinking is this is this going to be an allegory for something? Was mm. this something that was kind of try and put the wind up the regime? Um, you know, there's maybe a danger of overanalyzing things, but this was quite puzzling to watch and think because with, without spoiling anything, throughout it there is this I the religious ideas going through it, and the the guy who I'm imagining is kind of the landlord of this bed and breakfast was kind of in charge of that. Um, is a vehement atheist, isn't he? And he's kind of haranguing this guy at one point and telling him how terrible, superstitious, rubbish religion is. It then becomes very religious at the end. And without telling you what happens at the end, it certainly isn't God comes and saves everybody. Um, so I guess this could have been presented to the authorities as a kind of piece of pro-communist, anti-religious propaganda. But um, that was one of the things that really interested me about it. It mm. was... Um, it's a bit hard to say because I, I don't really you can't really describe what happens in the final half hour of it but it becomes a lot more freeform rather than this strange I'm surprised you've not mentioned the bed sitting room yet actually I I was, that, uh, that was one of the first things I was going to mention yeah. but I thought I'd better not it's, it's like that with even fewer laughs though isn't it um, oh I really like the bed sitting room <laughs> but, and also it's interesting that um, you have many 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 extras of actual um What's the well, politically correct I know what you mean. Term. I, well, I think a lot of the people here are Down syndrome, but um, people with mental handicaps, I suppose. Apologies if that's not the politically correct term, but mm. um, I was a little troubled by that because even though you do, um, there's a history of that in films, it's it's like 
I'm always uncomfortable with it, even in Tommy, the Ken Russell movie, when there's a scene with a lot of disabled people being wheeled in as kind of basket cases to touch the hem of Marilyn Monroe's dress, isn't it, I think? Um, the famous incident, which is really sneered at, is Michael Winner in the, the, the Sentinel, I think, when um, they, they really handicap people to play the denizens of hell. Um, and with this, because it again, we, we're a bit vague on what's actually meant to be going on in this film, but it's vague this, within itself. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, here these characters are actually meant to be—they're referred to as degenerates and mutants, aren't they? Yeah, they are meant to be people who have been affected by whatever's going on in the environment at the time. And yeah, you, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that in a way that maybe a Jodorowsky or Herzog will use disabled people, but usually in a different context. Or von Trier, even. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I I did find it interesting because you can't help but uh, be suspicious of how these people are treated mm. in within that regime. Anyway, um, I mean, you hear and read stories of. Well, I'm in no way implying that <laughs> communism was anything like Nazism, but there is a definite sort of superiority that rises up um, within. Yeah, stuff I've heard there is. It not well treated no yeah. no exactly so but I did think on the other hand as well maybe because it's coming towards the end of that period in the the, the Soviet era 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 <laughs> Soviet era um, then maybe it was a more of a political statement from Lopushansky. Um the thing that struck me is when these characters the degenerates first appear they are there is this is the line they are presented in Apologies, a freak show way, aren't they? I think we are oh, meant yeah. to be appalled by this kind of the look of them, this crowds of them all in black robes with candles and things. Whereas in, let's say, a movie like Santa Sangre, um, the the people with disabilities there are meant to be people with disabilities. They're not meant to be there in a. You, you can argue about what Jodorowsky's point of putting those characters in, um, hiring hiring those um, actors. Uh, and in El Topo as well. Mm. I don't know. It's it's a it's a moving line, isn't it? But yeah, just here, yeah. I felt they were. I initially thought they were being used for the visual, you know, that freak show element of it. Sure. I was quite uncomfortable with it. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> did you enjoy this in the end, or did it? Uh, it's not something I'm going to well, revisit. I I'm glad I watched it. <laughs> I'm glad I watched it. Um, I'm very keen to watch his other movies um, just because I think he, I think he's got he's got quite a distinctive visual style which it certainly yeah, stems from the likes of Tarkovsky but there are some scenes like in the latter half of the movie and at those those earlier scenes I don't know whether it's just his uh, choice of location and certainly shooting at those times you're gonna have these options of finding these bizarre locations um, and also, I love the use of music. Um, so yeah, I, it's very hard to say. I, I, I don't like it. I don't dislike it. It's one of those. Yeah, no, I think it was I just probably, I probably enjoyed it more than you did. I think. Yeah, um, maybe. but I would like. I'd recommend this to people, but I think it is, and it's um, it's not like fast forward. I'm, I'm sure people don't do that anyway. But don't fast forward to the end. You almost need to be softened up by that. So it's such a kind of breakthrough when it gets to this sort of scenes in the last the last quarter of it and I I really loved it at the end it's it's almost like if Derek Jarman made good films towards the <laughs> end you know? um, this whole very unusual take on religion at the end which I just really loved and um, yeah I mean I'd be interested to watch more of his stuff 
What we didn't mention, because I think we got so caught up in the idea of hiring uh, handicapped people to play the, the mutants, there's another level of degenerate here, uh, which is very disappointing because it just seems to be joke shop teeth. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was even deliberate because begin with it worked co okay but I think later later is it, is it went on. <laughs> they got bigger yeah. and bigger yeah they started looking like the have you seen the Apex Twin video of Winter yeah yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, for all the listeners Dick Emery as a vicar it was, <laughs> it was very reminiscent of that um, another weird touch I liked in this was often in the background they had uh, the TV on. You seem to be showing these really terrible pop videos from the 80s, which I'm imagining were done especially for the film. But that was something that lent it a really strange air as well. Yeah, because there's a sequence where there's a, a, sort of a, of a dance later, club yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, that was quite Lynchian, I thought. Mm. That put me in mind of, you know, like Ben performing in Blue Velvet <laughs> or when Lynch has these little musical numbers going on in his films. It reminded me a bit of that. Not quite taking you out, but making you sit up and scratch your head a bit more. Last week you've lent me the DVD of Myra Breckenridge, which <laughs> is uh, universally, well not universally, it's it's widely hailed as one of the worst films ever made. Golden Turkey. For what that's, for what that's worth, because yeah, it's Golden Turkey. There's a bit of a feed and frenzy on these things, aren't there? Yeah. I watched that last <laughs> night. See Prometheus. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, yeah, Myra Breckenridge, I did watch last night, and it is pretty terrible, it's got to be said. Uh, you've got a little smile playing on your lips there. I did enjoy it though, it's one of those odd things. Yeah, no, I really liked it. You genuinely really? like it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think... Because um, people may not have heard of Myra Breckenridge. It's a 1970 film based on a Gore Vidal novel about a transsexual uh, manta woman who goes to Hollywood and, you know, causes a lot of trouble, uh, starring Raquel Welsh. And John Huston. And John Huston and Mae West and Rex Reed, who was a <laughs> film critic. <laughs> Those people should never be put in front of a camera or behind it. Um, but, yeah, camp outrageous the thing is I'm going to say it was really quite pretentious as well it did this very annoying thing of um, editing in footage from old 20th century Fox films which apparently got into a lot of trouble with the, the stars that were yeah, still alive at the time yeah. recontextualising it that just it just as an aesthetic thing it really annoys me and it reminded me of that John Landis show from the early 90s called Dream On Remember oh, that? vaguely, Which yeah. used to bug the fuck out of me. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'd, obviously, I didn't have to watch it, but I was living with a couple of other uh, people at the time who watched it, and I just hated it. Hated it. Um, but no, talk of <laughs> terrible films. Have you got anything else to say about Myra Breckenridge before we move on? No, John, no, no. It's probably no, John Carradine's best performance, actually, <laughs> as, as the gender realignment doctor. Well, he's not, is he? He's, he turns up with a cigarette in his mouth at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> but so. I, I really like Houston in it. I think he's... Uh, oh, he's brilliant. He's great, yeah. He's brilliant. Raquel Welsh gives a really good, good performance. Mm. Even Rex Reed is not too bad. He's absolutely suited to it. He's so wasp <laughs> waspish. He's very much like John Waters or something, isn't it? Is it? Apparently, he got arrested for shoplifting Peggy Lee CDs uh, about <coughs> ten years ago. <laughs> Poor old Must Rex. have been desperate. But yes, this is a roundabout way of saying. On the last show, we asked for some uh, feedback from you guys on the worst film you've ever seen, and uh, we've got some responses here. Thanks to everyone who's uh, given us some uh, feedback. 
you want to kick off? I will. Our first one up is Mark Foster, aka Dude Foz. The Devil's Chair. I chanced it for three pounds, and it's just a repugnant film. I've actually told people in shops to put it down. Incompetently made. Acting is brittle, and the script sounds like it was written in a Weatherspoons. <laughs> Which is where we spent. We've just the time. been. <laughs> yes. Writing the script for Devil's Chair too. Um, we've had a look at the trailers for some of these because a lot of them are things we'd not really heard of. Well, certainly I hadn't. I'm not, I don't want to speak on your behalf. No, I hadn't heard of most of them right. to be honest. Um, Devil's Chair did look quite terrible from the trailer. It did, but it's the kind of film that I would chance. <laughs> I would watch it from the trailer. Actually, it's got Matt Berry in it as well from yeah, Garth Marenghi. Matt Berry. So I was imagining it was going to be somewhat tongue in cheek but it was the way I had this voice over from a guy who's talking very casually about these things while people were getting slaughtered <laughs> in really horrendous ways but it's uh, uh, in common with a lot of films on this list it's the production values that just look really cheap don't they um, video camera they do, yeah yeah um, and it looked like it had Jason Statham in but well, it sounded not, like it had Jason Statham in but it wasn't it was Statham light yeah it was yeah. very it was, what was he called I can't even remember his name uh, something Edwards or something right. just forgettable Oh dear! Uh, thanks for that, Mark. Uh, Joe Scaramanga. Hi, Alan. Boarding house inept on every conceivable level. Plotless, pointless, and endless. Only drink helps. And I recently saw Ishtar for the first and hopefully last time. Also inept on every level and expensive. Um, that's a good point to raise. I mean, it, there's there's bad cheap films which I think you might give people a bit of leeway and go, yeah, no, they're they're trying to get something out on yeah. on the screens. Yeah, something like Ishtar, or a book I love, even though I now look back on the Golden Turkey Awards book, which I used to love, but now think it's sneering from a great height on these things. The Medved Brothers also did, um, I think it was, the, it was it's a bad type, it's like the Hollywood Hall of Shame, but it is the biggest flops. And reading through that really was, it's, it's amusing, but it's also shocking how much money got wasted on stuff that was just pointless you know yeah Cleopatra yeah. particularly and Doctor Doom that's before. just made its money back within the last couple of years hasn't it I think that's the Cleopatra. power of Burton <laughs> and Richard O'Sullivan I think well it? Heaven's Gate's the most famous <laughs> one obviously though isn't it that's that yes, lost that bankrupt so the studio much. didn't it yeah um, Boarding House you saw the trailer well it wasn't the trailer I sent you a clip from a review didn't I I think um, yes this was the one with the did. girl talking to her dad lots of wigs yes um, looked like Mark she wanted Rube. his heart <laughs> and got it in the end <laughs> but, quite uh, remarkable you've also lent me um, Stephen Thrower's Nightmare USA where I think Boarding House does get special mention in there <laughs> and I think because uh, oh, I'll just read the next one out as well uh, Dan Orty um, Mondo Dan Boarding, in Boarding House's defence, the FAB press screening in 06 was one of the best times I've ever had in a cinema. <laughs> um, FAB or Fab, I'm not sure how they yeah. pronounce it. Uh, the publishers of Nightmare USA. So I imagine they did some special special stuff. <laughs> it's probably appropriate. Everyone had to I can imagine week. this would go down great with an audience. With a oh, I would have thought it. Probably like uh, Giallo when it was shown at Fright Fest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, in in uh, Stephen Thrower's book, I think he does say it's quite hallucinatory almost because it's it's not just badly made. You're not really sure what's going on or what why they've made certain choices. I yeah, think well, they do then send a review to the director, and he loves it because he says, "Yes, that was exactly the kind of feeling I was going for." <laughs> really put people off guard and not know where they were. <laughs> oh, fair play then. <laughs> Um, Dom O'Brien the worst film is also one of the strangest films I've seen and that is 1972's Premonition also known as Head 
Words cannot describe any number of the bloody awful hippie songs about peace. Also the horrible fourth wall narration or the ketchup blood. Um, this, I think, is the first feature from Alan Shepard who went on to do things like Equinox. Um, I did look at the trailer of that and it did look pretty terrible. It In fairness, it was a fan-made fan fan made so And it had the butthole surfers on it, which sounded, <laughs> it actually sounded really good. It, it did lure me in a little bit. Were you getting down? <laughs> yeah, I was, because I, I quite like the butthole surfers anyway. So I was listening to it and I was... Yeah, the images were a little bit hokey, but I thought, man, maybe, maybe I could give that a try. Really? Yeah. Okay, on, on your on your head, be it. <laughs> no, no, intended. Lyndon Dunham, hello. Worst film, Sardoz. Sean Connery in a nappy and ponytail, running amok in post-apocalypse island, and then meeting a bunch of hippies. Hippies are getting real short shrift. <laughs> <laughs> Much cod philosophical talking ensues and nothing remotely interesting happens. Seems to go on forever. Not Mr. Borman's finest hour, it has to be said. Horribly unwatchable, pretentious muck. Um, I did know Zardoz before we <laughs> did this. I was delighted when Lyndon um, brought it up. It's <laughs> fucking dreadful, isn't it? I remember watching this 20-odd years ago. Um, with some interest, I was, I'd was i heard about it. It sounded kind of intriguing. It, it is, yeah, Lyndon's completely summed it up there. And I sent you the original trailer, which goes on for about four minutes or something. Yeah, it's a long it? one, yeah. Awful. Zardoz. I have a confession to make. <laughs> I quite you like Zardoz. You bought Sean Connery's nappy off eBay. Yeah, <laughs> I bought his uh, ponytail as well. What's to I like wear about it on this? the nappy? Um, it's just a curio, though. I mean, it, it, it's so absolutely out there. It it's doesn't very fit. much of the. It's it, very much. Well, it's what is it, nineteen seventy-ish or something? Yeah. But very much coming off the back of the sixties and all of this sort of, uh, yeah, cold philosophical crap. But it really just doesn't fit into en any other film. Maybe, uh, maybe a good double bill would be ZPG and Zardoz. <laughs> yeah, there's some similarities there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I do like the fact it's. I mean, it's something that I've only ever watched like really drunk with other people. Uh, probably like Boarding House was for uh, Dan. <laughs> Um, it's just one of those you point and laugh at it a lot, and um, that's why I like it. You know who was originally in the in the lens for the for the role? Oh, for Jed. For Jed. For Jed. <laughs> um, no idea. Burt Robert Plant. Oh, but <laughs> they make basically make him look like Burt Reynolds. <laughs> Do you know who it should have been? Who? Roger Moore. No way. Oh no, I'm just saying. No way. That would have been another <laughs> oh, that film altogether. Been. Um, I was at, for various reasons, the Irish BAFTAs a few years back. The IFTAs. I was hoping they'd be the Begoras. Um, but John Borman was receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award or something. And when they did like the five-minute compilation of his um, his career, I was thinking, are they? And they did. They did yeah. put Zardoz in there and Exorcist to the Guns are good. Penis Guns is are good. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I think all the guests there have been plied with uh, champagne and Guinness all evening, so uh, it went out okay. But uh, <laughs> I did actually walk past him um, at the hotel; it was being um, earlier in the day, and uh, I was—I gave him a funny look. <laughs> did you give him a look like one of the floating heads? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ed, Ed, Ed. Hi, Ed. Uh, is a mate of mine. Overboard with Adam Sandler or Freeway 2 Confessions of a Trick Baby. Both total gash. <laughs> you like Sandler? I do like well, Sandler. Got time for it. I've not seen Overboard. Um, 
And I know the Mondo guys were bigging up Freeway too, because it's Matthew Bright, isn't it? He did I'm Revenant. I'm not, not familiar with it. Oh, right, okay. Is it Reese Witherspoon? You're actually the other one. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Okay, cheers. Giles Edwards, I once called Adam Mason's Dust as the worst film made by anyone anywhere ever in a review, and he put that on the sleeve. Not that I want to jump on Mason after the Devil's Chair mention, as he's a nice guy. I really liked his film Broken, though I'm in somewhat of a minority there. He was good enough to talk to me face to face, we dust, as well, hence that quote. Um, I was trying to remember the trailer. It's the one I couldn't find in English, was it? It was kind of in mm. Russian or Czech or something. German. German, right. <laughs> That's my linguistic <laughs> One of foreign prowess. languages. <laughs> um, yeah, it looked terrible. That looked bad as well. Actually, they, they both reminded me of... Because when I talked about my worst film, I talked it more in terms of the most disappointing film for me. So it was Once Upon a Time in the Midlands by uh, Shane Meadows. But definitely one of the worst films I've seen in recent memories if we're going along these kind of lines is Gutterballs by a director called Ryan Nicholson who is a effects guy on some some of Cronenberg's films and it's a rape revenge film Gutterballs and it is just out the mind boggles it's awful it's all set in like a bowling alley and in See, and around there I wanted to do a Tom Cruise 80s teen movie called Gutterballs often <laughs> sort of come up with ideas for it. We would have Dennis Hopper as the owner of it. Cruz <laughs> was trying to court his daughter and, you know, a bit of a cross star cross lovers thing. But now someone's beaten no, me to that title. No, it's quite different. But it has got an amazing soundtrack. That's the the it by uh, Steve Moore of Zombie. <laughs> really great eighties synth, right, so synth stuff. Like, uh no, it's more just cheesy eighties right. synth action. Okay, onwards. Anthony Nesbitt. Tough guys don't dance. Anything by Troma, Valentino, McVicker, No Secrets, The Devil's Own, Superman for the Quest for Peace, Number One of the Secret Service, Bolero, Love Actually, Gandhi, Alexander, Just One? Oh, go on. I'll go with The Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Gotta admit, it's kind of cathartic. The making of book tie-in is a scream. I'd like to read that book. I would as well. I'll have a look. <laughs> I didn't even know there was one. Yeah. I'm going to see if there might be a cheap copy on the Exodus to the Heretic. I've still not managed to watch it all. Uh, Four I'm times I've tried, I just can't get through it. Going back to the Golden Turkeys because they came out in around '78, so I think this was the biggest, you know, recent disaster, and it's mentioned a lot in there. Um, and they go into specific details. When I finally got to watch it, I was disappointed that it was just bad rather than as bad as they were describing. And in fact, scenes that they were describing in the book weren't in the film. And I think it was redrawn and given a, another edit. But Burton. It's the bird. But just going through some of the others in there. Uh, Tough Guys Don't Dance. Do you ever heard of that? Trauma, dreadful. Yeah. Valentino is a Ken Russell I've not seen yet. No, I haven't seen that. Uh, McVigar's... Mm. Is that um, Daltry? Yeah. Daltry Anna, Adam Faith, I think. Superman 4, though, is a stinker. Filmed in Milton Keynes. There's a, there's a very definite drop off in quality there. <laughs> and number one of the Secret Service, I've not seen, but I think that's Gareth Hunt in a James Bond rip off. Spoof? I was going to say spoof, but <laughs> I think possibly rip off. Okay, thanks, Anthony. And finally, for this time round. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be doing a few more of these after the next review because we don't want to delay things for too long. Uh, Stuart Barr, aka Max Wren, to the chorus of groans from my followers, it has to be Absence of Light, the single worst film of ever. The rest of the cast seem to have been recruited from a spectacularly poor amateur dramatic society. 
The slumming it horror stars were probably paid in food stamps. The major locations are a succession of cheap hotel conference facilities, and the VFX, video effects is that, are from Tandy. The script is paranoid drivel. I love the last comment, actually. Um, the trailer for that did look jaw-dropping. Because <laughs> it has got people who think, they're not going to be in their side. Because it doesn't look like someone just it's on a, a home video who? and rolled it around. It's Tom Savini and Carolyn Monroe and people. David Hess. Yeah. Uh, what's he called? Michael Berryman, is it? From... Um uh, Hills of Eyes. Oh yes, I thought you were doing a Klingon. <laughs> and cut and run. Um, Tony Todd. I was, <laughs> I was blown oh, away. God, yeah. Why are all these people doing this? And it does look so cheap because it's rather than just having a man with an axe ring around, they've got some invading aliens or something. But they do look so cheaply done. Like they look like gameplay from a computer yeah. game. <laughs> Absolutely dreadful. Thanks to everyone. Thanks for all those. And like I say, we'll really do. Uh, and like I say, we're going to be doing a few more after yeah, the next review. Yeah, part two to follow. Yeah, because we've already gone for quite a while there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, uh, is Kiki Bridges there, please? This is her. Hi. Uh, you don't know me. I'm calling because I'm interested in your paperweights. A chance encounter with Rosanna Arquette is enough to get the word processor Griffin Dunn curious about hooking up with a kooky chick later on at her Soho loft apartment. Losing all of his money before he's even out of the cab, a night of spiralling horror awaits Dunn as he plummets through an army of bizarre characters and cruel coincidence in Martin Scorsese's 1986 black comedy, After Hours. So, in this last volume of Midnight Video, we round off with our listeners' vote, and the winner was Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Hooray! Which, which I'm really happy about. Yeah. I mean, I think someone did say... Um, Forgive me, I can't remember who, but um, I think they, the, their vote was like, oh, uh, given that Goodfellas or Taxi Driver will, will walk it, you know. And I was thinking, I don't know, I think it'll be After Hours or King of Comedy. I thought those were going to be the two. I think that know. says a lot about our listeners. Oh, jolly good. <laughs> but, um, no, I'm very happy that this won. It's a film that I've um, I've known for a long time, about 20-odd years. And, yeah, it's, it's a real favourite, and it's nice because most of the time we're reviewing films that we've never seen before but it, it's nice occasionally to have a film that you're very familiar with and you finally got the chance to spout on about it yeah I'm probably not as familiar with it as you I, I've i only seen it halfway through I think the first time I watched it I, I turned on TV and I was like what, what the hell is this film going on about and then I had to I, I couldn't complete it I had to go out or something but then I watched it um in the interim between now and then rewatching it, and yeah, it's it's a great great film that I was very keen to uh, to discuss as well. Um, quite an oddity on um, Scorsese's filmography as well. Yeah, for one, it's short. <laughs> um, That's true, actually. It's well, an hour and a half, isn't it? And there's no flab on it. The, the <laughs> film it reminds me of in a really weird way is The Fly. It's one that just absolutely gets on with it and doesn't around doing a lot of scene setting and three hours and I think it was the first one in about ten years he hadn't done with De Niro I'm not sure if working with Griffin Dunn's not quite such an obsessive not that I know De Niro's working methods but yeah it really does stand out from his filmography uh, Scorsese's filmography not that I've seen all of his stuff but you're usually some uh, used to his films being somewhat more serious minded and big projects and this really feels I'm not going to say light but something that's been done you know, in quite a rapid way, it's it's almost like when um, P.T. Anderson did Punch Drunk Love, yeah, rather than his magnum opuses, yeah, sure, is yeah. it opuses? What's the plural? Opie. Magnus opie, okay, <laughs> opie. 
made to make you out of water. <laughs> Something just occurred to me though when we were talking then, um, how it, in some ways it reminds me of Three O'Clock High, which we covered. Yeah, um, it's got a lot of that speed ramp editing, I think it's called. But the thing I've always been reminded of is Risky Business, which mm. also I was thinking of with Three O'Clock High, uh, which we reviewed quite near the beginning, I think, yeah, <laughs> about show eight or something. <laughs> um, yeah, it's got a lot of that kinetic kind of energy to it, and also the the mounting terror that's happening. You know, it's 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 not a grand sweep at all. It's very insular, you know, claustrophobic. Yeah, you were absolutely in there with the character and sort of stuck with them while stuff's happening, seemingly in real time almost. Yeah, that was yeah. That's actually something that I really picked up on watching it the other day was how it just felt like events were unfolding as as you're watching. Uh, Griffin Dunn go through it it's literally like watching someone have a breakdown in front of you um, but not spread out at all it's just so confined all the time um, pretty much how um, Nicolas Cage breaks down in Vampire's Kiss which Joseph Minion who wrote this also wrote that um, yeah tight really tight the whole thing felt tight um, but also I don't know. I I don't know about my interpretation of it, but I felt very much in. It was a bit of a wake up call for Griffin Dunn's character, in that you you have the opening sequence where he's a word processor, which I can't help but think of. He's just like this keyboard. It's, yeah, <laughs> I think it's possibly meant something else in that. Yeah, it might have been like quite a high powered computer whiz job rather than a data entry kind of thing but he's showing um oh what's Bron his Bronson Pin show yeah he's, he's showing him showing him sort of like MS DOS or something like yes. that isn't it <laughs> it's just basic commands which Bronson Pin is really good at the way he pauses and nods and says, yeah yeah I've yeah. got yes and it's all you can see the the wheels going around in his head it's a very brief role but he's great in it yeah he's always great in everything he always uh, brings something to proceedings um but yeah so you've got Griffin Dunn's character and he's obviously bored or unhappy or um, is apathetic, apathetic with what's going think, yeah. on around him or what's going on within him and a, a great scene or a great shot is him in his beige suit and beige shirt in his beige painted apartment on his beige um, sofa watching TV not being able to pick a channel and yeah, it just, just really summed up the character really succinctly in the first five minutes and for the rest of the film it's just him being put in all these situations which has has to sort of draw something out of him whether or not that's i don't know the if joseph minion had that intention or well obviously he's going to have an intention when he's writing a character but whether that was biographical or the way he was feeling at the time but it, it, i don't know it, it's the kind of thing that speaks to people but it can also be misconstrued, I suppose. Yeah, because I remember last week when we were getting the votes in, uh, Colin Colin Waters was saying it's it's part of the, the, the yuppie in peril thing, which this often gets cited there, but the only other film I ever hear of mentioned is um, Something Wild, the Jonathan Demi, which I've never liked. I've never seen that. Um, whereas this I love. But you're wondering now from 25 years later or whatever, what... what if after, well, the, People didn't call it yuppie in peril, like the filmmakers... But you're wondering quite what the point of this, and you're saying a wake-up call. I'm wondering if the character, um, the audience at the time, were meant to look at Griffin Dunn as an aspirational character at all, because, like you say, I think they make it quite clear he's 
unhappy or apathetic. Um, and he's doing quite well for himself. He's not living in palatial luxury, but he seems to have quite a nice apartment and, and whatever. Uh, and whatever. Um, um, there's always that thing of, is given what the film is, are we meant to identify with him and think, that's me, I'd better stay away from all of that nasty stuff that happens downtown, and you know, they only come out at night and all of that kind of stuff. Or whether we were actually more meant to be siding with the denizens of Soho and thinking, you know, this is what happens when some ignorant guy comes in and doesn't really know the rules of the place, you know, or has no idea of what people's lives are like. Cultural tourism, I think it's called, <laughs> yes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yes. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, like I say, I've, I've, I've known this film for 20 odd years and re always really enjoyed it, but watching it again last night, um, I really felt I identified with the Griffin Dunn character. <laughs> um, just in terms of being very uncomfortable going out and into areas that I'm not, you know, familiar with, and you know, the the job I have um, at the moment is indexing photos uh, for a picture library, which means I work from home two weeks out of three, and that third week when I come in, I'm always finding it sort of such a hassle to have to commute now. <laughs> you know, I was worried I, I was going to communicate. Um, <laughs> a little bit of that, um, <laughs> but no, I always thought I was going to go stir crazy staying at home, but it's more the reverse. Now I find going out even more you know pronounced that you if you go in going from the sort of area i live in and then going into the west end of london or even coming here to london bridge today when it's like <laughs> tourists all around the london dungeon you're just thinking i want to be out of here i don't want to have to get involved in all this noise and crowds and everything which um, is how certainly like dunn's character mm, comes across as is his situations get he's got his own comfort zone and mm. yeah, it leads me to something else um, I just want to get home to my appointment and I, sleep <laughs> and eventually I just want to live <laughs> it's really quite a positive message at the end because yeah. like you say he's at the beginning he's not suicidal or anything but it, there's, the pizzazz seems to have gone out of his life and for him to make this admission at the end when his life does seem to be genuinely in peril I just want to live. He's almost like breathing it out. It's hardly. I just want to live, and yeah, I thought that was uh, that was really upbeat in a strange kind of way. Because mm, yeah. Um, yeah, something else I wanted to say was um, when I first watched this, I remember being really impressed by the structure of it, which sounds a bit cerebral, but it, 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 was, it was almost like watching Good, the Bad, and the Ugly for the first time when the twists in it were so unexpected, and it is so brilliantly plotted. And at that time, I've not seen anything like this, where um, everything that happens to Dunn's character once he gets to Soho, it's a it's a it's a toppling pile of dominoes, isn't it? But go around in a spiral. Spiral is the word you're using all the way through this, and you can almost physically see the plot taking a shape. If Tony Stark was moving the seats around <laughs> with his hands, and Minority Report style, because um, yeah, it's that thing of things get worse and worse, but as the events. Um, unfold things refer back to things that happened earlier and there's this web of coincidence that's going on through it and at the time that really struck me I'm still impressed by it but the thing is in the years since then you have um, sitcoms like Peep Show and Curb Your Enthusiasm which seem to do the same thing I'm not saying they're ripping it off from this but just you're, I'm more used to seeing that and getting very impressed with how elegantly structured these things are hmm. rather than a, a comedy which is just a, a comedy character and a bunch of stuff happens to them you know it's an evolution of writing, I suppose. You know, thankfully things change, especially in comedy. Yeah, <laughs> something that mm, needs to remain fresh. A lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, do you think Scorsese actually had a hand in the script on this? Um, possibly, because I'm sure you read this as well. But um, it's Thelma Schoonmacher who edited it. Yeah, and it does have quite a distinct look to it, um, with the 
with the speed ramp, the very kinetic, very speed ramp editing and stuff. But apparently it was Michael Powell who was um, either married or engaged to her at the time. You know, grand old man of British cinema who'd been out on his ear for quite a while after peeping Tom. Um, but apparently it was him who came up with the ending of this. That's right, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, someone of even then Scorsese's... Although I did like the idea that they had for the other ending. Uh, I'm trying to remember what that is now. He was going to be remaining. Right, okay. I was wondering if. Because I was thinking, we won't, we won't spoil the end. <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering if they were going to do that. And that would have been too bleak. I'm yeah. glad that they do have this quite ludicrous ending to it, which just brings everything right round again, it's, you know? Yeah, it's, it neatly ties things up. But yeah, I could imagine Scorsese did have an influence on the, sc on the script. But the thing is, like I say, I've not seen all of his filmography, probably by some measure, certainly his more recent stuff. Mm. Uh, but this really does stand out from it. It just seems, it is, I think, the most overtly comic of his films, even though it's a black comedy, and, and I think unlike a lot of other black comedies where that means you usually have to ramp everything up so it's so over the top that people maybe can't be offended, mm. this actually seems, even though it's something of a fantasy because things, the coincidences are, are too ludicrous. Mm. Uh, they'd almost make you believe in a god or something. <laughs> <laughs> a vengeful Old Testament god. Um, a lot of it does seem quite close to the bone with uh, some of the subject matter in there, the suicides and whatever. Yeah... I'm not saying it's offensive and they shouldn't have done it, but no. It's but I think maybe for a, a gen, maybe my generation. I mean, I'm ten years younger than you. Well, no, seven years. Sorry. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, it feels like ten years sometimes. What, what's what's three years between friends? Um, but for people, I, I find for someone like myself, whose formative years have been. Uh, watching stuff like Brass Eye and the Chris Morris type things where he, he, boundaries have been pushed to a point where where can you go from the inner clever intelligent way and you can't really even though this is like many years before that um, I just found it, it it was a it was a black comedy it, I didn't find it was really that um, risque yeah, in those elements but uh, all right, it's a bit weird to say because not me it's a bit hard to say because we've both seen it before. But yeah. Even now, bits of it surprise me that, you know, there's some of the twists it takes in terms of subject matter, you know. But then also, this is another feeling I've got. I know people call this, the reviewers have referred to it as being nightmarish, and, and it is obviously for the central character, but it's also very dreamlike. And I do wonder in some ways whether we're getting quite a subjective viewpoint. Um, I know things are going on around done that he's not a control over but there is that sort of idea of him willing these things in some way or deserving them or de yeah well maybe deserving you know he's a pawn of the gods kind of thing yeah, yeah we don't really know anything much about him to begin with he no. almost seems a bit like a Pat Bateman in American Psycho <laughs> or something uh, that's the thing uh, you, you said word processor which yeah I imagine was a fancier job back in 86 than what the, the name suggests to us now but um yeah, I think I always did Tom Hanks do that in Big. Who knows? That's, <laughs> that's not really left in my long-term memory. <laughs> I think I always assumed he was a much more high-powered figure because of that. Those shots with the gates closing. It always reminded me of Wall Street, right? Know, kind of thing. Um, but also, I think to strengthen this as a comedy, you've got some great actors in there. Um, particularly, is it John Hurd or Peter? John Hurd, uh, Catherine O'Hara and John Hurd, yeah. their barman. Yeah. 
and Catherine O'Hara, who actually play Macaulay Culkin's parents in the Home Alone movies. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> but, you know, the uh, oh, Catherine O'Hara has done stuff with Christopher Guest, hasn't she? Yeah, she uh, isn't she in the American Pie movies? I think she's... Is it Stifler's mom? Is oh, the no. Older oh, that's not Catherine O'Hara, but that's another she, actress. Oh, right. Yeah. I was, she um, was the attractive older lady. Yeah. <laughs> Cheech and Chong... Dick yes, Miller, old Tommy Chong is a bit <laughs> under the weather now, isn't he? Oh, is he? He's got prostate cancer. Yeah, oh, I didn't know. Announced. I think he's out for a while, but he's just gone public with it. But, um, oh, poor Tommy. Let's put a downer on things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Terry Gar from Close Encounters yes. of the Third Kind, which um, well, that does bring me to something else. This has had a lot of charges of being misogynist, and I suppose it's the nature of it is Griffin Dunn tries to pick up Rosanna Arquette. She, without telling you what happens, turns out to be a little funny in the head <laughs> but then yeah there are two or three other women he meets in it who again seem initially uh, to be coming on to him to some extent and then turn out to be a not quite different. there a bit loopy yeah <laughs> um, I thought he can level misogyny at that I mean that's the thing is I'd, I'd say everyone in this no one in this comes out well no, um, no. well as Griffin Dunn's character is meant to be the centre of it and the person you're relating to but all the male characters although again the male characters are mostly gay in this but I was actually thinking about it's that homophobic, on, isn't I it? was well I was thinking about that on the way and thinking can you say this is homophobic because okay the gay characters in it are a bit stereotypical but how are you going to how are you going to present gay characters they're either very fey in this aren't they or the, there's a couple of leather boys uh, clones uh, in it Tom and Finland's yes um and actually, I was thinking that on the train here. I was on what, a of Tom of Finland? I was thinking, <laughs> is it... Is it... Because right. the, the gay characters in this aren't represented as mad or unpleasant, are they? They just happen to be a little They're bit just stereotypical. But yeah, yeah. That's how you do things in films. And I was thinking, it's it, it's not too outrageous a representation of gay characters, is it? And at that point, I was on an empty carriage. Two tattoo gentlemen got on to the train and sat down and just shrieked at each other for the rest of the journey. Uh, actually, it was one of them. The other was a bit more subdued, the other guy. Um, but the one bloke was going on about having his penis pierced. Oh, my God. Um, competitive dancing and whether Liza Minnelli should be in any of the London shows at the moment. <laughs> no, it was uh, it was a strange old journey there. Um, but no, if anything, I'd say this is misanthropic, you know. But even then I like I say it's that thing about the comfort zone and it's 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 good that you say it's the wake-up call because I'm not sure this is, is this ultimately they're meant to say you should be happy with your horrible little life and that's what your uh, that's what Griffin Dunn's characters cut out for or this is the alternative you know can can you mm, handle the madness binary because yeah. <laughs> I don't even think it's anti-soho or anything because it's no I, I it's, don't think it's I just I think I'm not even sure there's that much to it in terms of thought. I think it's just a nightmarish comedy, and it's really good. Very well done, and very much a product of its time as well. You know, it's that, that, that little buzzword that, that people yeah, love the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist. Yeah, because yeah. um, I mean, I mean, I did think, well, not immediate, but certainly when we were talking before, I just thought three o'clock high fits into that bracket. You said risky business. You know, there's this whole slew of films between like I don't know, eighty-two and eighty-eight that. Mm. That um, that fit that sort of remit, and then I suppose later on, you know, things start changing. The game with Michael Douglas. <laughs> I was thinking more like Brett Easton Ellis writes American Psycho, <laughs> which is going to be remade apparently. Oh God, 
by Michael Bay or somewhere. Um, watching this last night, some bits really struck me about the editing in it. Um, there is the thing we've said, the very kinetic stuff, the speed ramp, but also just so many... Because there is a feeling of there almost being a god in the universe in this. It's like the fates are conspiring against it. Yeah, yeah. And there are lovely bit, little bits um, which I'm inclined to say were the... You can't really tell because obviously it's a collaboration, but I'm inclined to think it will be something to do with uh, Thelma Schumacher, the editor, rather than Scorsese, or more her than him. But great bits when he's like standing at the urinal, is it somewhere? And the pam camera just pans over to this graffiti shark. of a shark biting a guy's cock, and it's it's held for just long enough for it to get in your conscience and not linger on it. But also, there's another point when he's having a uh, he's meeting one of the characters, and just to punctuate when this character said something particularly, uh oh, a rat getting caught in his yes, mouse yes. trap for like <laughs> a brief second or something. He has a flash of his life. Uh, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> really wonderful stuff like that. And yeah, um, I the nearest to this would probably be King of Comedy, but that's a very different film. You know, it's black again, it's black comedy, but done with a lot more. Yeah, De Niro almost puts a bit too much. And Dunn's Dunn's performance is brilliant. It is. It, it is almost an extension of his uh, American Werewolf. Yeah. yeah. Um, a character I always loved in that, but he's probably the best thing about that film in some ways. I mean, I love America well, yeah. but he's he is one of many cherries on the cake, I think. But he's great, and I love it in the making of American Werewolf when they're talking about him seeing the cast they've made of him. I think it's eventually, it's initially when they put the prosthetics. Sorry to spoil American Werewolf <laughs> if by any chance you've not seen it. But he's always returning as this zombie ghost kind of character. And as he's decaying, I think when he first saw himself in the prosthetics, he got really quite freaked by it, didn't he? It was kind of a reminder of his mortality. And then later on, when it was the, the puppet of him, which he had to do the voice for, but he had to be there watching this skeleton version. His eviscerated well, self rotting. I think away. it really, it's, it sounds like it really took it out of him, you know. No, um, yeah, this is kind of a parallel universe where that character finished his course at college and uh, <laughs> ended up doing something wretched this in his life. Yeah. Uh, in conclusion, I really love this. Yeah, yeah Th Thanks to everyone too. who voted for it, and thanks that we... I, mean, I know someone uh, did vote for New York, New York. Yes, I'm very that glad. was Mark Foster, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we didn't get to do that. <laughs> I tried watching it a few times, and De Niro is such a... His character is such a dick. <laughs> Although the two guys I was on the train with would have been pleased with Liza Minnelli in it. <laughs> One of them did say, Liza Minnelli should play the wizard in the stage version of Wizard of Oz. Who has to? Who says that the wizard has to be a woman? And you do go, that would be the Witch of Oz. To our worst film you ever seen contributions. Thanks. <laughs> Dead Zone. Oh, <laughs> Jonathan Sorry, Livingston. Dead Zone. <laughs> Kinging off with Steve Araya. 
I'm not sure how you pronounce Isn't that. Aria, Araya, Steve Howell is Araya it? Light. In, 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 in reality. I'm sure he won't mind. Uh, Steve says the low-budget Nam film Combat Zone. Awful acting, direction, sets, effects, storyline. I could go on. Not even entertainingly bad. Just utter shit. Possibly the only war film I've seen that I haven't watched all the way through. Although Mrs. A made me watch Red Riding Hood the other week, and that was pretty shocking. That's not a war film. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I've known Steve a long time. He was very much into Vietnam movies. I, I, many years ago, I wanted him to write a book, which I think was going to be his top three Vietnam films, then every rip-off uh, in comparison. <laughs> but he, I think one he loved was Charlie Moped. Do you know that one? No. No. Oh well, no way. So, it sounds great, though. Charlie but Moped. Charlie, Charlie Moped. Yeah, mm. I think he said it was good, but looked like it was filmed in someone's patio. <laughs> but um, I wasn't able to find a trailer for that, so I mean, we can't really discuss it. Oh, that's a shame. Mm, no. it, could, it could be a double with Combat Shock. That's what I thought he meant, meant when I uh, when <gasps> read it. Yeah. Can you imagine if someone had oh. written that in? Well, we wouldn't read it out. <laughs> Andy McCartan. Hey, Andy. Uh, okay, I'd never suggest one of the stinkers like Dead Cert, as they just annoy me for wasting mine and everyone else's time. Bad, but some fun scenes. Jack Frost from 1997. Is that the Michael Keaton film? I hope so. Wow. I don't know any other Jack Frosts. Yeah, where he comes back as a snowman. It's it's the nightmare we all face. <laughs> but I love Michael Keaton, though. Only because your son makes you watch Cars all the time. <laughs> Chick Hicks. Chick Hicks. Uh, and girl, Star Crystal, 1986. I can't believe that I wasted good money on renting this straight-to-video pile of cack. Uh, I remember that was a Mondo movie reader's question, wasn't it? Someone had heard of an alien rip-off that ended with the alien converting to Christianity. Along those lines, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not quite as hilarious as that sounds, though, is it? It's, no, I've got it, it on is, video. Like, it's, it is rubbish. It, it's bad, but I, yeah, I, I don't mind it's not one of it's, my it's no Prometheus. I can understand how it could be someone's worst. It is no Prometheus, thank God. Uh, Michael Keating, you Congo. Love Michael Keating. <laughs> He's there. Yeah. He's speak to me. Congo. Simple. It's just a uh, one, just one word sentence. Um, that's Congo, the Michael Crichton, rather than Conga with a K. The um, oh, what's his name? Is that the female uh, King Kong film? Not female. No. Um, Michael Goff. Oh yeah, Michael Goff is a mad scientist. Um, it's a terrible film, Congo. A mad scientist um, falls in love with uh, one of his students. Uh, wants to keep the local hunk away from her, for starters. So uh, injects a chimp with um, something which makes it grow into a man in an ape suit. <laughs> but it does contain. When his wife finds out about this, it does contain the brilliant line. What do you want with your eggs for breakfast? Murder? <laughs> Hans Olo Johansson. I do sit through a lot of crud, so the choice wasn't easy. Took it back to my native Norway in the end. This, or a story about love, as IMDB has it listed, is a love story set over four years. Without dialogue, just internal narration or thoughts. It's so far up its pretentious backside it's a wonder the director, Orn Sand, wasn't tarred, feathered and exiled from Norway <laughs> upon the movie's release. Nice to see you. <laughs> oh, 
Is that something that happens in Norway regularly? Bad films? Man, <laughs> Guy Ritchie would have been left the, that place a while back. Hey, hey. <laughs> Ironically, one of Norway's most successful movies, i.e. cost of making versus box office return sales. As, include, as including myself, people sort it out on the back of the terrible reception. One reviewer from a Norwegian newspaper, Blank refused to rate it as giving it any kind of score would acknowledge this product's right to call itself a movie, and that I won't do. <laughs> I once ran in, I once ran into Orn Sand at my local Laserdisc vendor. That's great. <laughs> when I lived in Norway, he was sat alone at a table doing a signing for his movie on VHS release. He didn't even get a Laserdisc release no. <laughs> at the Laserdisc vendor. No one was queuing. When it became apparent I wasn't there for the signing, he ended up leaving the table to chase me around the shop, trying to shove a signed poster into my hands. It could have been worse. Uh, I took the poster in the end, hoping to use the opportunity to chat about the film, but he would only communicate in what seemed like rehearsed, incomprehensible poems. This is fantastic. That is the it, greatest like feedback we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I, your nightmare came true, Hans. I, I wasn't able to find a clip of this or a story about look, but I did see a little interview on Norwegian TV with this on Sand, and he does look quite a character. <laughs> Yeah, looks like Someone needs to do a bio, uh, biopic about him. <laughs> oh yeah, it would go well with um, what was it? Is it overnight the overnight? Uh, Troy, yeah, Troy Duffy. Troy Duffy yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, phenomenal stuff though. Uh, Brolin's Hoover. Hi, Paul. Met him the other day. Very nice chap he is. He gave me a copy of Breathless, a Korean movie, which he said might well have been um, subtitled in Croydon due to all the and wankers that they use in it. Uh, the Basement, a 2009 doc claimed to be a cross between Godfather and Capturing the Freedmans. It was neither of those. When we finally do get to The Basement, it transpires the filmmaker had dinner in there. That's it. Mind-blowingly pointless. Worst mainstream, Shutter Island. Rubbish twists that you'll work out in two minutes. Awful rear projection and hateful music. Haven't seen it, but Scorsese link. Yeah, um, I I really didn't like Shutter Island. I saw it at the cinema. I was I was very disappointed mm. by it. I know it's um, it's generally got very positive feedback. I think mm. overall, um, but not for me. I'll get round to it. Mind you, I've not seen quite like I said. I've not seen a few of um, Scorsese's recent ones. Uh, Jane Doe, the worst movie I've ever seen and own is At Dawn They Sleep. It's actually painful to watch. Oh, and Killjoy and Vampires vs. Zombies. <laughs> they all sound great, don't the they? At Dawn They Sleep sounds. Uh, <laughs> it was a good title. It must be a vampire film. Uh, James? Yeah, there was a kind of string of oriental characters after that on Twitter. I couldn't... Uh, uh, Blade Squad is the worst movie. Rented Blade Runner once, and we got Blade Squad instead. <laughs> oh, was it? That was on. Uh, is it Mondo Ben? They what, wanted Commando, Commando and they got Commando. The mum got them Commando Leopard. Yeah. It's got Kinski in it. Hey, sounds like a step up. And finally, Cyber Schizoid. I watched the worst movie I've ever seen just last night. Three exclamation marks. Actium Maximus from Troma, of course. And we saw the trailer. We, for this. Yes, we had a look at the trailer of that. <laughs> I wasn't really sure belief. what was going on. No. It looked like uh, it was possibly using that old um, 
you know, the old technique they used for dinosaurs in a pre-CGI age when they used to get lizards and put like prosthetics around them and they'd go around looking bored or <laughs> agitated. But with astonishingly poor back projection. The thing with Troma is obviously they tried to be a bit kitsch and campy, um, but that just made it even worse somehow. But I love the pretentiousness mm. of the title, Actium Maximus. <laughs> yeah, I think with Troma, they're a bit of a... Um, you either love them or hate them, I think. I There's no, them. yeah. Except for I, Combat Shock. That's but that's not them, you know, they distributed yeah. it, yeah. Whereas I think with stuff like um, the Full Moon stuff, you know, the Charles and Albert Band things, mm. I think there's, yeah, they're trying to make some money and knock stuff out, but there's something a little bit more uh, honest about what they're doing. Whereas I think Kaufman, you know, he's a, he's a bit of a... Arsehole. Look at me. Mm. Look at me. <laughs> right, well, thanks for all the feedback there. Happy viewing, if any of those have tickled your fancy. Yeah, but I'd be in very fact, interested to know what people are going to watch out of <laughs> In fact, we might post up some of those trailers for the ones on, uh, on, oh, the, on Facebook. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> we can't not. The guilds of space navigators, through the use of the orange spice drug, are able to fold space. That is, to guide spaceships without moving from one planet to another. 1984 was a year of science fiction terror for director David Lynch, but not in any way Orwell would have predicted. Making would-be blockbuster Dune was not a happy experience for Lynch, but he did at least keep his name on the theatrical release. Not so a later cut which adds 40 minutes of extra footage, including a 10-minute illustrated prologue, new narration and voiceovers, and at long last Patrick Stewart as a guitar hero. Welcome to Planet Arrakis, also known as Alan Smithy's Dune. As with After Hours, it's nice to, rather than doing a film which is kind of fresh to you, to go back over something you've, you've really spent many years um, getting to know and have some quite firm opinions on. This is a kind of weird halfway house, because it's the film that I'm assuming you've watched a few times as well, the, the original cut. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but in its whole new form. <laughs> it's been Alan Smithersized. <laughs> <laughs> so a second Alan Smithy film, isn't it? Uh, oh yeah, was it Hellraiser Four? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. I was quite keen to do this, even though I think over the shows I've probably said a few times that it's one of my favourite David Lynch films. I mean, I, I I love a Razor Head, but I watched it so many times when I was younger. It's difficult to watch now. Blue Velvet, still brilliant, but again, overwatched it. This is something I keep returning to, and I remember when I was at the peak of my Lynch mania, kind of around 1990-ish, I disregarded it and thought it was this kind of um, oddity that he maybe just had to do in order to finance uh, Blue Velvet. Now I look back on it and I love it. Um, uh, certainly the cut we're all familiar with. Um, much more so, and I know this will be an unpopular view amongst certain people, and probably including you, Phil, <laughs> I much prefer it to anything he did after Blue Velvet. Wow, I can understand that. I'll go with that. It doesn't mean I agree. Okay, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of love for uh, Dune. Uh, if, if you speak to hardcore Lynch fans or people who are more than familiar with Lynch's work, I think they can appreciate Dune's part of his canon, albeit um, unlike After Hours, which is an oddity in mm -hmm. Scorsese's filmography, but it. it it still captures the essence of what Scorsese is about. Dune is quite different in that it, it, 
Lynch hadn't really yeah. ever done if, if you'd something watched, on that um, scale. If you'd watched those previous Scorsese films and then in 86 they said, it's going to be this black comedy about a guy stuck in New York, you think, yeah, yeah, I can imagine that happening. If you've watched the two previous David Lynch films, I think, wasn't it? And mm. from maybe his, his um, back catalogue of s- short films. To say you're, you're going to have <laughs> this multi-million dollar sci-fi epic. I think even he would be quite surprised. And um, But as Mel Brooks said, he's the Jimmy Stewart from Mars. He is. is it, you're a madman, you're in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we're waffling. What did you think of this Alan Smithy version? Did it... Um, did it add anything to it? Did it detract from it? Or was it a completely different experience? It it was completely different because I'm so familiar with the Lynch cut, the theatrical release. Um I I know that inside out, back to front. Um I've read the read the books a few times as well. So the misgivings and the hang ups that people generally have with Lynch's film have never bothered me to be honest, like mm. plot wise. I mean plot's the big thing. because um, yeah, it is a very big complex plot and I think in the film it always had trouble conveying that. So mm. you do get this couple of minutes of gobbledygook with Virginia Madsen at the beginning as the, the princess, the Emperor's daughter. Um here actually it's even worse. <laughs> well this <laughs> is the, this is the thing. Yeah. I've read a number of reviews on Amazon um, from where I bought the DVD because you can get this on DVD mm-hmm. and also on IMDB and other things where some people have said the best thing about this is that it makes everything clearer it really doesn't I, I, th- I think there's way too much narration it goes overboard I mean all you're doing is listening to people talk um, unnecessarily um, let the images let, let let the visual aspect do some um, exposition work, yeah. for you and work which it does you know it does um, you might have to work a bit for it but I'm quite happy to do that <laughs> I mean I've not read about why they did this because it's not Virginia Madsen I'm not sure who it is doing the narration because yeah amongst all the many strange characters on Arrakis none of them sound like this guy he just sounds like someone you'd meet in a bar downtown but absolutely but he's trying to do this voice of uh, <laughs> yeah was, uh, with the emperor's rank yeah um, yeah <laughs> but yeah 10 minutes of narration at the beginning explaining backstory which you don't need to know really no, and about the way the, it's about the machine uprising and uh, yeah, sorry, the machines taking over and the humans having to get rid of them and then doing away with machines and all the different castes that appear afterwards, which you didn't need even in the, I think even in the original they could have got away with just throwing you in the deep end and waiting for you to pick it up yourself. You know, you can tell who's a witch in it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the you can tell who's a bad guy. And it's not just like the prologue that they put in. I mean, I'll just say from now that I think all the ex- the forty minutes of extra stuff, um, f- twenty five minutes of that was unnecessary. It didn't add anything to the story. There was like little tiny scenes which uh, expanded more. But yeah, yeah, and it, just unnecessary. The prologue I'd like to have seen just as an extra because yeah. I think it's an oddity. Yeah. It's quite amusing the way it's done as well because <laughs> you have the normal introduction to the film with you know the the, the Dune images and the, the 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 titles coming up, and then it cuts to a copy of the book. Yes, <laughs> and like a Bruce Pennington cover and goes in. Actually, says that. prologue. Yeah, before showing you what looked like production sketches, but they're not actually because they got the actors in and everything. So mm. they're kind of like charcoal, pastel-y kind of um, things. But like I say, completely unnecessary. And throughout it, voiceovers that almost make this like a um, 
when you get dramatic reconstructions in documentaries, when they just have a narrator describing what happened and then have people silently walking around in the background. Because there was a telling point when I think it has um, Jürgen Prognos' character, um, the Duke uh, Leto, isn't it, I think? Um, yeah. Um, and it's describing what he's doing. So he's thinking about this, but he's read this letter which says this, and then he decides that he can't really accept the Baron's thing because he knows it's going to be a trap. I think, why did you show all this? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there is actually a couple of lines of dialogue when he explains that all to one of the other characters later. and It reminds you of... Um, because uh, you've just lent me a book of Peter Greenaway interviews, but he said when he was doing his early BFI stuff, because he did fake documentaries, he said one of the financiers' uh, criticisms of it is, when are you going to do a film when the characters talk to each other rather than to us? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in a weird way, I mean, there are some parallels with Lynch mm. and Greenaway, but uh, actually he's, Lynch, uh, Greenaway's Dune would have been interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, this... The extra footage doesn't add anything. However, given this now clocks in at three hours, I didn't find it a struggle to sit through. Uh, I know you had to do it in a few chunks, didn't you? Yeah, I watched it in three three goes. I, I've always watched the uh, the theatrical version just straight through with no yeah. problem. But this, I found the extra bits. I mean, they d they don't get to um, uh, Paul and. Uh, his mother don't really get to meet the Fremen until like the last hour, mm. so you've got two hours building up to that. When really that that was done much better in the the other the original cut, where everything just feels a lot more spaced yeah. out and um, <laughs> balanced. <laughs> yeah, which it's just very funny thinking about. They're trying to make things more clear, and the other thing is when you know a film so well and you see things tampered with, mm. it really plays on you. There's a scene where the Benny Gesserit, I think, are going to Dune, yeah. and then there's flash forwards to Paul and his mother being tied up, and it doesn't relate until mm. way after. I, I don't know if you noticed that. No, I mean, a thing I found was I am familiar with the old one, I've watched it many times. Um, I think there've been a few other films like this when you're then watching special editions and thinking, was that in the original? Because mm. you think if it's a film you're familiar with, you'll know it. But if it's one you're kind of familiar with, yeah, and especially because one of the most striking things about Dune, one of the things that makes it so enjoyable, is the set design. Mm. You're more kind of in that world rather than thinking about specific bits. I mean, I noticed there was actually a bit missing. Um, isn't the bit when the the Baron Harkonnen yeah rips the like a, a plug isn't it the heart plug yeah yeah uh, which is missing and I thought oh was it too gruesome because that did end with a lot of blood spatting up well it was a TV cut yeah. edit this wasn't it it was for TV yeah. in and San I think Francisco I think <laughs> <of> all places <laughs> right <laughs> yeah because um, yeah <laughs> yeah the Baron is quite a sort of overtly what is that I read a few things about it had criticism from um, certain sectors of the gay community but I just think it's a flamboyant portrayal I, I yeah maybe really? I'm going to be in huge trouble after this I after know. hours <laughs> <laughs> did you notice as well that um, the the navigator the guild navigator had a different voice no I didn't yeah um, that I noticed that straight away because the in Lynch's cut has quite a, a whispery mm. sort of tone to it, but this one was it was totally different, and I was like, oh, that got really, <laughs> I got a bit pissed off at. And that. was, was it like, just the difference, or did the actual choice of voice? The choice think? of voice yeah. was poor because I think the sound, the the music was much further down in the mix, and I've always really quite liked Toto's soundtrack, if only for the fact that you've got this ominous music playing over the opening, 
and all these big famous names coming up and it just goes music by Toto <laughs> it just uh, <laughs> always looks faintly ludicrous I'm quite sure um, there's different music in it as well there seems to be yeah, some bits with more sort of tribally sort mm. of drumming and then there's other bits with even more synths going on and and there's an overuse of the soundtrack as well it's sometimes it's just unnecessarily like in the mix whilst there's a lot of dialogue it's mm. just like it's not really doing anything I'm guessing you're going to be sticking with the original then the, uh, yeah all the yeah. way all the way um something we should mention is the original disc you got of this wasn't up to speed um, no not at the all the sound was quite out of sync well it started off okay but then it got badly out of sync you've got a replacement now thankfully yeah but the version I watched was that one and I gotta say that kind of added something to it uh, <laughs> for me because it was so full of because voice there's so much voice <laughs> that that as well because you I mean, I'm sure people will have seen tune um, you got so many incidents when you've got a character talking, then their thoughts will come in, but they're not psychic. It will be stuff like Max von Sydow going, "Despite my better judgment, I like this Duke," nodding to himself. But then you have that as well. But now, it, now this version, it was probably two seconds out. Probably it's quite. Oh, it was long. Quite, yeah. quite distinct, and it was ahead, wasn't it? I think the sound was ahead of the thing. So, yeah, I, I found it. Um, I found that really added something. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, I found it quite annoying to be honest, because uh, there were scenes where I knew what was going on, but then finding this dialogue being so out of sync, it, it just yeah, it took me out of it. But I can see how it can be quite amusing, but when it's three hours long and <laughs> unnecessarily that long. Wow. But I've got to say, I did like the fact that we had. Uh, a bit more Gurney, a bit more Patrick Stewart. And it's specifically his little chapstick. <laughs> his little. What's Sorry, it it's Chapman stick, I think, isn't it? That kind of. Ballet, ballet set, is ballet it? Ballet set is the yeah. thing tune, yeah. But I think in reality, that instrument. Oh, right. The board with a kind. It's like a guitar. That is a real it? instrument. Yeah. I had no idea. Probably not with the rotating thing on the oh, Okay, it, okay. But, um, yeah. It looks like some kind of like sitar come lute kind yeah. of no because there is a specific little scene which I, I have posted up on air site in the past but uh, we'll do it again with Patrick Stewart playing this little kind of jazzy ballad um, but then it pans around the room at the other characters and Sudo's getting down to it yeah, he's, yeah. he's nodding away he's having a good time um, was it Dean Stockwell mm. Dr. Yui seems kind of amused by it Freddie Jones is having none of it yeah <laughs> but he's, he's a mentor. He's a mentor. He's, he's not got time they're, for art. They're trained against anything like that. They don't like that late, the King Crimson stuff with um, when Tony Levin joined the group. And then you've got Jürgen Prokhnoff and Carl uh, McLaughlin, who we've not really mentioned. No, who originally Dexter Fletcher was meant to play Paul because he worked on The Elephant Man with uh, right. with uh, Lynch. Ooh, Can gosh. you imagine Fletcher? No. <laughs> or... Uh, Rob Lowe was in the frame as well. Ooh, no. I think he recently did his biography, probably in the last year or something. And apparently he was up for the role, but they read ahead to what he'd be doing in sequels. And it sounds like because you're pretty familiar with the books, I think they were yeah. going to truncate some of the, um, combine some of the characters, and I think he was going to turn into a giant worm at the end of the second one, <laughs> uh, which he wasn't too impressed with. <laughs> but no, I, I, uh, it. I remember watching this when it came out, um, 1984, or sort of been 12, 13, or something at the time, and um, it's quite gruesome at places, isn't it? I mean, I think a lot of people have talked about this because it does have links with other Lynch films, things like the uh, the Guild Navigator, 
Um, mm. And there are kind of some of the hallucination scenes do have a planet splintering off like an eggshell, which is an image from a razor head as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, things like the the, the strange cat that Thufa's got to look after. Yes, <laughs> absolutely insane. But um, the bit when uh, Paul's mother, Francesca Annis, is pregnant, but the the child, um, Aaliyah, has all this knowledge because she's drunk this magic water. If you've not watched June, you have no idea what we're rattling on about. <laughs> but then, unnecessarily, it shows the baby, the fetus, doesn't it? You think, you don't really need to put this in there. I'm glad it's there, but it's just yeah. one of those uh, things, one of those odd moments. Well, actually, we do get to see the uh, source of the water of life in mm. this as well, which is w actually, yeah. You did like that, didn't That you? is one of the... I think that's good, actually. That does um, is an important part of yeah. the story. We actually get to see them manhandling a little worm. <laughs> it's about um, well, it's about four foot long or something, isn't it? <laughs> it's just and it does look a bit mechanical or whatever, but it's good. It's mm. uh, I, yeah. I, I enjoyed. I do. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm pleased you said that it takes it detracts from it not having the frame until the last hour. Because I was thinking um, recently there has been a lot of talk of doing Dune again as a film. I think this is probably off the back of Lord of the Rings being a hit, and it's merely a numbers thing of what's another big fantasy epic we could make a trilogy out of or something um, I mean you're pretty familiar with the books I just cr I think one of the reasons Dune flopped at the box office when it came out is I think it's very difficult for people to identify with Paul as a character I mean mm. he's the main guy I think about it when I remember maybe not articulating it but when I first saw it the fact that he was a prince and he had all these guys around him and then very quickly he's sort of taken off and tested to see if he's the messiah and it seems like there's a good chance he is and it's quite hard to relate to someone like that. And um, if you think about it, I mean, I know George Lucas has been accused of taking quite a lot of Star Wars from Dune, but very specifically, I mean, that's Luke Skywalker, isn't it? It's just that he was smart enough to remove him from that. And he is royalty and the Messiah, but when we first meet him, he's a farm boy. So we have he has to sort of earn his stripes, so to speak. And by the time we realize that's who he is, we've seen him go through all these tests. So. Mm. Even if they do uh, do a new version of Dune now, I think you'd probably have to turn around the story quite significantly. I'd probably if I was if someone yeah. wants to give me the money to do it, <laughs> I'd probably focus on the Fremen and have Paul Moore as a messiah figure who comes in. Who comes right w yeah. without us seeing his background, or it's you know it's alluded to somehow, but probably make Cheney his uh, his bride, sort of a more central character, and Keen's her father, you know, Max von Sydow. Oh yeah, well, what's taking place on Dune? Yeah. Really, make that the focus. Make up the focus, and mm. yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that's an idea. Yeah, Dune for me, I first remember seeing it on. I think it was number seventy-three. Do you remember that? With yeah, Sandy, Sandy Toxic. Yeah, um, they showed a clip of them fighting with the yeah. shields, and I was like five or six or something. Yeah. and I just watched that. I was like, wow, I really want to see that. Obviously, I never got taken to see it. Um, but then when it came out on video, I was. I was quite made even as a, an eight-year-old. I found it absolutely fascinating. It was it was a very alternative Star Wars, really, for mm. like the play. I mean, not many people watched it. I don't think at my school, but I, it always captured my imagination. I couldn't wait to read the books, but you know, even reading them as a youngster, they were, they were, they were, they were, I read more of them as a youngster than yeah. I did now rereading <laughs> them. I got bored of them quite quickly this time. Which is the thing now. I think there's the the the, the um, received wisdom is that the first one, that they're kind of diminishing returns, the first 
Dune book is good and then they go down down and they were more like an obligation for him financially I think um, I've not read all of them I've only read the first three but they're full of great ideas but absolutely wretched prose he's got no idea about Frank Herbert has no idea about characterization or um, descriptive prose you know Bland. I think he uses the phrase make toilets quite a lot of the time <laughs> well yeah he's got it's very much like when you <laughs> A bit like um, the early Silver Surfer comics or Thor and stuff, where they they, they love using this old flowery language and it's so unnecessary <laughs> for like very futuristic sci- for sci-fi ideas. <laughs> Seems like a complete regression. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you seen the TV version? The um, uh, you know, the Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, I, I'm, I got it on video when it first came out, but I didn't like it. It was, it was a CGI fest. It just looked a bit. And it's naff. the CGI that very much date stamps it to when yeah. it was made. Again, that's got a good um, reputation with fans because it includes more of the plot, but it's a bit too luxurious. <laughs> uh, and also the fact that Benny Gesserit just have these kind of. Uh, Given how brilliant the costume and set designs in the, uh, in in the Lynch version Lynch. are, or the Smithy version, in the TV version, it's not their fault. But um, yeah, you can't help look looking like a sort of fairly decent stage show rather than. I didn't particularly like. Uh, oh, what's his face? Alec Alec McCowan or something, isn't he? Plays yeah, Paul. as Paul either. Yeah. I didn't. Fa- I, or the James problem McAvoy is in the sequel. Ooh, James McAvoy is his son in the oh, sequel. Oh, he plays Leto, does he? Susan Sarandon is, uh, yeah. is in it as well. But I didn't, I, I didn't see that. Um, no, when you've got the the visual splendor of uh, what Lynch did with that, which seems to be a bit of a hangover from uh, the Jodorowsky, Honorowski's uh, designs, but it's very hard to see anything else in another light. Uh, um, and speaking of Honorowski. Um, there's a documentary that's is it out yet or it's, I, it's not impending that, not that I know of I think it's in the can and everything so I don't know there's probably a lot of clearance and right clearance and stuff. which is about the making of the, the non-making, the non-making of, of uh, Hodorowsky's Dune which just sounded like well I mean it is in all the all the books that are about the greatest films never made well, yeah because there's so much there with the production designs from Mobius Giga Chris Foss you know, Way no, I'm very fussy. much looking forward to seeing that. And Floyd on the soundtrack. Floyd, yeah. As Salvador Dali, a million a day. <laughs> they shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind. And they will gather the captivity of the sand. Okay, that's all for this time. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, no listeners vote this time, but you know, get in touch with us if you do want to. Uh, if you dare. If you have a word, want to have a word. Uh, yeah, follow us on Twitter at Midnight Video. Check us out on Facebook. Just give us a little search. Send us an email. Midnight Video. Sorry, is it Midnight Video? At no. hotmail.com? <laughs> I can't remember now. Do Midnight it. Video at hotmail.co.uk. That's the one. <laughs> Uh, and check out the blog midnight-video.com we'll have uh, pictures from the films featured and maybe some poster artwork as well that's about all all the time I get to do these days you can get the links to work yeah yeah, go on the Facebook I I know people don't use Facebook but some people don't but if you do you'll get to see a lot of the uh, trailers of people's worst film choices yes and we might even add a few of our own but uh, we'll see how that goes Mm -hmm. okay join us again next time 
for the last show of uh, volume one of Midnight Video. Yeah, get your Kleenex ready. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. See you next time. Bye. It was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I heard Was a song outside my window And the traffic wrote the words It came a-ringing up like Christmas bells And wrapping up like pipes and drums This, I think, is one of the, is one of the linchpins of Dune's importance That it ever actually got made It was a book that shouldn't have been shot it was a script that couldn't have been written. It was a directorial job that was beyond anyone's doing. It was a production that would beggar the imagination and bankrupt three studios. It was a production that could not possibly be marketed in any way that anyone could understand or that they would go to. It didn't hit its audience. It looked like it insulted its audience. It looked like it defamed its, its, its uh, originator. And yet, the film was made. Thank <laughs> you.